Two months ago, my team began to work with a bipartisan group of senators to put together the toughest, smartest, fairest border security bill in history. If that bill were the law today, I'd shut down the border right now and fix it quickly. On Wednesday, February 7th, Republican senators rejected the bipartisan bill President Biden is referring to when he was speaking at a campaign event in South Carolina. The failure is happening at a time when immigration now outranks inflation as a top policy issue among registered voters. That's according to an online poll by Harvard's Caps and Harris X. Beyond the rhetoric and political theater, there is a humanitarian crisis unfolding across the country. The issue is so fraught, we now hear a Democratic president open to closing the borders. Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. Perhaps few communities feel these realities quite as intensely as Tucson, Arizona. The city sits 65 miles north of the border, and it was here that the sanctuary movement was born. Back in the 1980s, volunteers secretly transported those fleeing war in Central America into the United States through a series of churches and safe houses. Though the practice has been long retired, a new sanctuary movement is emerging, and it's taking root across the country. Today on the show, a special episode from the Borderlands. We meet the people addressing the many needs of migrants, providing food, shelter, medical attention, legal and emotional support. Producer Melissa Fato traveled to Tucson to report this story, first broadcast in May of 2019. On a quiet street in Tucson, Arizona, the old Benedictine monastery stands against a bright blue sky. Its bell tower, Captain Green, soars over the sprawling three-story structure. Its Spanish Revival architecture stands out in shell pink. It looks peaceful and calm, but inside the monastery, it's a different story. People rush by me, not even looking twice as I walk by. Volunteers mill from one department to the next. Laundry, kitchen, clothing room. Along the hallway on the ground floor, guests of the shelter await their turn for assistance from the medical staff or transportation office. Some sit on the floor, charging their phones from stray outlets. That's where I meet Teresa Cavendish, Director of Operations of Catholic Community Services of Southern Arizona, or CCS. Where do you think I can find her? Hi, Hi Teresa, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Welcome. Nice Hi. to meet you. Sorry, we're processing the number. 67 new people are yes. coming in. 67, okay. In one, like, all at once, or we don't know? They'll, they'll start at 1 o'clock, and then they'll, they'll just do vans instead of buses today. Okay. We're figuring it out. This is um, the highest number of folks that we've ever had. Wow. So. How much is that? Uh, we're well over 200 right now. Oh, my gosh. She's polite, but rushed. Since December, the former monastery has been the temporary home to several hundred migrants a day. Operated by Casa Alitas, a CCS program, the shelter opened as a response to the growing number of migrants entering the United States and the growing number of people being detained by ICE, or Immigration and Customs Enforcement. They have crossed into the United States. They either crossed through a port of entry or somewhere in between the ports of entry. And they have been apprehended or turned themselves over to Border Patrol. They have been processed through Border Patrol, and then they have been turned over to ICE. Immigration and Custom Enforcement is 
responsible for releasing individuals into the United States. So ICE has made a determination that all of these folks are eligible for release. They have been granted 15 days of humanitarian parole. During that 15 days, which begins from the point that they are released by ICE, they are required to move forward and join their identified sponsors here in the U.S. So if you're going to Nashville, Tennessee, your immigration hearing is in Nashville, Tennessee, and it's 15 days from the point that you are released by ICE. And so these families now are obligated to make that initial appointment. So when they come to us here, part of our services that we provide them is the ability to arrive at that appointment. So we help them contact their families, get their bus ticket or their plane ticket, and then move forward with take them to the bus station so they can move forward with their families. So while they're with us, we make sure that they eat, that they drink, that they have a chance to shower because that hasn't happened typically in a little while. Without nonprofit shelters like these, ICE employs street release, which is exactly what it sounds like. Once cleared for release and given an initial hearing date, migrants will simply be shown the door of the detention center. Hungry, tired, often sick, with limited English skills, migrants are left with little resources to survive. Many of their belongings have been stolen or confiscated, and those belongings were limited to begin with. The folks who come to us are by and large from Central America, and so it's Central American families or um, Central American pregnant women who have been forced to flee their, their homes and their countries in order to seek protection for themselves and for their children. So their lives, either through violence and poverty, um, extortion, threats, have reached a place where they can no longer safely remain where they are. And so this shelter functions as an oasis of sorts. In addition to offering food, clothes, beds, and showers, the shelter also features a medical clinic, a small library, an art therapy room, and more. It's a place where newly released migrants stay a few days to recharge, regroup, and figure out their travel plans to their sponsors, family members, or friends who have agreed to look after someone as they move through immigration proceedings. But this will soon change. Catholic Community Services only has the space until July 31st. My name is Ross Rolney. I'm here in Tucson. I am a real estate developer, a real estate investor, and uh, by chance, I happen to be the successful buyer of this monastery here located right in the central part of Tucson. The Benedictine Sisters, a Catholic order, occupied the monastery from 1940 to 2018. When dwindling numbers and an aging population forced them to sell the property, Ross won the bid. But then a chance meeting with some CCF staff changed everything. Uh, it, it was just very innocent. I was at the Ward 6 office getting ready to uh, attend a meeting, and I was waiting my turn, sitting in a chair, and I happened to overhear some of the staff talking about uh, the conditions at another facility that they were using and I just sat there eavesdropping and, um, and just said, hey, listen, I don't know what I'm talking about. I don't know if it's possible or of interest to you, but would the monastery be an option to help out? And, you know, they kind of lit up and they said, wow, uh, that is interesting. And it was hard to slow any of it down. And it just kind of happened. And so Ross has lent the monastery at no cost to CCS through the end of July. 
He's not personally involved with the operations of the shelter, but he feels that lending the property was the right thing to do. It's a very unfortunate set of circumstances. There is absolutely a crisis. You're talking about women and children that are coming in from different areas, and uh, it's a real difficult journey. They've been in the same clothes for weeks. They are cold, they're hungry, they're scared, and they don't know if they're walking into a detention center or some government property, and then CCS greets them and explains it to them, and, and it doesn't take long to see them smile. Before Ross gave CCS access to the monastery, they had a limited capacity to serve migrants. Since opening, this shelter has served around 7,500 women, children, and families. Every morning, a number of people will leave the shelter to catch their bus, and in the afternoon, a new group will arrive. CCS has a cooperative relationship with ICE and receives a correspondence every morning communicating how many people they will bring. The government agencies responsible for overseeing and managing the flow of migrants doesn't leave the entirely volunteer-run staff of the shelter much time to prepare. About an hour after I arrive, several gray vans pull up carrying newly released migrants. As Ross said, many of them smile as they enter. Some shake my hand. There's a chorus of quiet, gracias, gracias, gracias. Thank you, thank you, thank you. The new group is seated in the former chapel of the monastery. It's a practical place to hold an orientation. Pews in straight aisles with everyone facing front and center. The newcomers look around, admiring the beautiful church. They're mostly families or women with children. There's a sense of relief in the air. Immediately, volunteers get to work passing out water. Another volunteer explains to the group to drink their water slowly because they're dehydrated, and if they drink too quickly, they'll throw up. I sit next to two women traveling with young children. They look to be in their 20s or 30s. One of them is holding a little girl, fussing with her cup of water. This is my daughter. She's two, she says. The woman's name is Suseli. She didn't want to use her last name. She's from Chimaltenango, a town in southern Guatemala. She's been traveling for nine days, by bus and by foot. She says, we have a lot of needs, and in Guatemala, there just isn't work. We're very tired, and we work day and night for very little. Our family suffers. There's a lot of violence. And one has to look after the children and the family. But sitting in the pew... Suseli looks calm. It looks really pretty and very comfortable. It's better than the detention centers. Even a short stay at a detention center can take a toll on someone's health, especially after crossing a desert. Dr. Anna Lando is one of the two volunteer physicians at the shelter. She says it's very common for people to come in with some sort of ailment on top of any pre-existing conditions. Most people come in with with URIs, so coughs, colds, but there's a lot of dehydration and sort of gastritis, so like a a reflux because people haven't been eating or have been eating very poorly for many days. A trip through the desert can lead to dehydration, burns, cuts, and bruises at the least. 
Dr. Lando says being in ICE custody compounds these issues with new ones. Sometimes detainees even catch infectious diseases while in detention. The day I visited, an entire family arrived with the chicken pox. They're all stuck in one essentially big prison cell when they're in ICE. And so, and many of them are not given blankets. They're very cold. They're giving just the, the thin mylar and they're sleeping on the floors. So with air conditioning. So yes, they are having um, increased respiratory issues that are, you know, virally transmitted. So they're, it's, you know, they're all in the same, breathing the same air in the same space as they're coming through their um, their travels, that they have a number of different issues that have come up. Yeah. I sit in on a medical examination of a 44-year-old woman from Honduras. She gave me permission to listen. She tells the nurse that in the three days she and her son were detained, she had only received four burritos and five bottles of juice to eat and drink. She has both blood pressure and thyroid problems, but hadn't been allowed to take her thyroid medication while in detention. The malnourishment and the dehydration has lingering effects, and the shelter's guests sometimes struggle for days to readjust, suffering from vomiting and diarrhea. It can be especially hard on babies and young children. Yeah, so they're coming from ICE. They're not getting formula in um, the detention center, so they're coming with, like, juice and water in their bottles. Um, so it's, you know, even just for all the kids, it's really hard on their stomachs to to go from no food when they were already malnourished when they came in to then um, trying to take normal formula. It's, I mean, they're excited about it, but it, it's hard on their stomachs. That's Mallory Corellis, a nurse from Baltimore. She flew all the way to Arizona to serve three sleepless days and nights with RN Response Network, an organization that sends volunteer nurses on short-term humanitarian aid missions. It's not just medical issues the staff are concerned with. During orientation, one of the first things Mallory and the other nurses do is pass out chapstick, hair ties, and shoelaces. Those last two things and other, quote, potentially lethal items are confiscated by ICE. Women pull out the scraps of mylar blanket binding their braids and use the new hair ties. Providing these items offers these folks a little bit of their dignity back. Many of them come without shoelaces, so... But we only Shoelaces. have colored ones. Right. So, and people ask, I'm like, they, they don't want it to be glaringly obvious that they had their shoelaces taken, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So they ask for black and white, and we don't have any because they're gone. But the medical staff is just a sliver of the volunteer community that has grown in this shelter. The staff of CCS have trained hundreds of volunteers. Trudy Ernst is one of them. Um, it's unusual to find volunteer opportunity where... One can feel that one is really meeting a real need. She works in the clothing room, where guests can change out of soiled clothes and pick out a new outfit. She says it's one thing to donate money or goods, but there's nothing like actually connecting to those you're helping. Actually interacting with uh, the people is a real benefit. Perhaps the busiest volunteer of them all is Diego Pina Lopez. He's the site coordinator. On top of being a theology teacher at a local Catholic high school, he's at the shelter almost every day. He says it's important to be a model to his students and actually demonstrate the Catholic values he teaches in the classroom. Um, getting off of work, you know, teaching and even talking to the students, you know, it's one thing to say is like, 
you know, the, in Catholicism, the corporal work of, uh, of mercy or the spiritual works of mercy and social justice. It's one thing to say those things, but to actually give examples, you know, to the students say, like, look, you know, I'm not only talking the talk, I'm trying to walk the walk too. And then the mere fact is, like, right now I have four students that are volunteering right now. And to, to see that for me, it, it brings so much more joy to being a teacher and to know, like, I'm doing... I'm actually doing the right thing. Diego also greatly values collaborating with the migrants who come here. For example, many of the people here don't actually speak Spanish, but indigenous languages instead. This had led to some communication issues. So a space was created where the migrants could share and teach their language to the staff. In this room, posters, diagrams, and maps cover the walls. So this is the indigenous rooms for Guatemalans. Wow, okay. So in Guatemala, there's 23 languages. So what we've been having, what we've been trying to do is capture um, and work with these languages. So right here, uh, if you look around the room, you see uh, the body parts and everything, people. So what we try to capture is like the name for an elbow or knee and mom, quiche, uh, and all these other languages and dialects to make sure that we preserve them as well as when we talk to somebody, we're able to recognize as like what hurts and then have a resource book to work with in case we can't get an interpreter. And we're trying to make sure that everyone has... Um, the knowledge they need in their own language. We risk the loss of this culture, this like resources that these people have because we're not willing to talk or learn from them about what they have. And that's, and that's a shame. This nearly impossible endeavor of serving 7,500 people has only been possible through collaboration after all. When we first started, we met with uh, about six different uh, churches and nonprofits and said, like, how can we work together to handle the situation versus feeling isolated, building these walls between ourselves? And really, I think that's been the miracle and the, the main reason how we've been able to succeed is because you know, people from all backgrounds are here working together and um, listening to each other and appreciating each other's backgrounds. Catholic Community Services is reaching out to those faith and community groups again as they search for a new location. At the time of production, a new space hasn't been found yet. A building of similar capacity will be needed to keep an operation of this size going. As for what will happen to the monastery, Ross has big plans for the property. A crop of brand new condos will spring up in what were once orange groves surrounding the existing monastery. So what will happen is we'll have 255 new construction units throughout the property. It's about a seven-acre parcel, different heights of five, four, and three stories. And then we will have possibly additional units mixed use inside the existing 60,000 square foot monastery. And we want to make that a, a public space where people could come in and sit and have coffee and grab something to eat. Super excited to get started. And I'm guessing that construction could begin as early as September or October of this year. Though the function of the monastery will change to a mixed-use commercial space, Ross aims to preserve the beauty and the historical significance of this place. It's just one of Tucson's, you know, iconic treasures. It's not lost on the people here that this was once a sacred home, a sanctuary for women religious. And in a way, the Benedictine Monastery's short stint as a migrant shelter has allowed it to be a sanctuary one more time. Diego says it's not lost on the former residents either. So this was a Benedictine monastery, so it was for nuns for contemplation and prayer. They used to do that here, and they also used to be um, make uh, religious attire. 
And it's actually crazy. The new clothing room is actually where they used to make the religious attire. So they've actually been sending pictures back and forth for the people that used to be here. And they essentially um, were so moved to see that space that they used to make things to be used for people's clothing again. It's, and some of the nuns actually used to live here, have volunteered here. The operations at the monastery will soon wrap up, and the property will go on to experience a radical change. As for Diego, he hasn't lost faith. And I just sit there and I think, like, that's where God's at. When I was hungry, you fed me, you know, you clothed me. You know, with these people, that's where they're at. That was producer Melissa Fato reporting from Tucson, Arizona. To see photos she took of the shelter, please visit our website at www.interfaithradio.org. Coming up, we'll hear from two activists about the past and the future of the sanctuary movement. This is Inspired. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you. And let's get back to the show. You're listening to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. Southern Arizona was the birthplace of the organized sanctuary movement in the 1980s. What started as a few religious leaders offering space to migrants on their journeys grew into a national network. Today, the so-called new sanctuary movement is taking a different approach to migrant rights, one that is holistic, working beyond the walls of sanctuary. Producer Melissa Fato continues this story from Tucson, Arizona. This episode originally aired in May of 2019. In the courtyard of Southside Presbyterian Church stands a shrine to migrants. It's a terracotta plaque etched with the words, Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. It's from the Bible, Hebrews 13.2. Below the plaque, people have left stones, scrawled with the names of missing and deceased migrants. This congregation was one of the first to be active in the sanctuary movement. It's still active today. But a lot has changed since the 1980s, and in turn, their tactics. 
but the foundation of the movement has always been one of deep spiritual conviction. Yes, so really the sanctuary movement came from a group of committed Christians here in Southern Arizona who found out about the crisis of Central American refugees coming to the United States. That's Amy Beth Willis. I am the lead organizer of the Southern Arizona Sanctuary Coalition. We are a coalition made up of 14 congregations in Southern Arizona that are engaged um, in immigrant rights and are one of, I, I believe, over 40 sanctuary coalitions in the United States. The movement was originally organized by primarily Christian leadership, though today the sanctuary movement is multi-faith, with a number of synagogues, mosques, and other communities participating. So it started as a group of clergy that had already organized themselves into the Tucson Ecumenical Council. And so that group included um, pastors, priests, and Catholic sisters. And so those were really the first people involved. And some of those people were the former pastor of Southside Presbyterian, Reverend John Fife, a Quaker leader named Jim Corbett, a Catholic sister named Darlene Nagorski, a Catholic priest named Father Ricardo Elford, and many, many more. It all started when a number of Central Americans began trying to migrate to the United States in the 1980s. Because of civil wars that were brewing in their home countries, particularly in Guatemala and El Salvador. And essentially the U.S. government was funding um, the repressive governments in those countries. They were killing, maiming, kidnapping their own citizens, particularly in indigenous communities. And as a result, this forced thousands of people to flee their countries and look for refuge um, in Mexico and then many in the United States and Canada. And so once um, faith communities and other community members found out about this happening, uh, they decided they wanted to find ways to support these refugees because what they soon found out was that the U.S. government wanted to cover up their role in these conflicts. And so they wanted to cover that up by not actually admitting these folks as legitimate refugees, even though... The U.S. government had just signed into law the 1980 Refugee Act that stipulated that if um, someone comes onto U.S. soil and says that they need asylum, then they are guaranteed due process and the opportunity to, to go in front of an immigration judge and seek asylum. But during 1985, the government reported the statistic that only 5% of Central American asylum seekers were granted asylum, whereas 40% of Iranian asylum seekers were granted asylum. With so few asylum cases being accepted, the first effort of the sanctuary movement was to provide legal aid. They shipped out hundreds of volunteers to El Centro, California, where one of the closest detention centers was and began providing legal representation for the asylum seekers. And so they were going inside the facility, meeting folks, and really learning what they had gone through and the courage and resilience they had to be able to even make it to the United States. But they soon realized, seeing it directly happen, that immigration judges were not granting asylum and then were issuing deportation orders. And they knew the consequences of those deportation orders meant that the majority of the folks deported back to Guatemala and El Salvador would be killed once they were there. So then the question became, what do we do now? The legal system has failed. We have to do more. It is our call as as people of faith to welcome the stranger, love our neighbor, and to prevent injustice from happening. And so as a result, they they made a decision as a movement that first started as a just a smaller group within the movement um, that began smuggling these asylum seekers across the U.S.-Mexico border and um, brought them up into Tucson, which became kind of the first pit stop on a modern underground railroad. Jim Corbett, 
a local rancher and member of Tucson's Quaker community, started offering his home as a safe house. Soon, the movement began coordinating with Catholic churches on the Mexican side of the border and other churches on the U.S. side, including Southside Presbyterian. Over the next couple of years, this national network formed. At its high point, included over 500 congregations and this modern underground railroad where folks would move from city to city, um, really just based on wherever they wanted to settle in the United States. But all this begs the question, was it legal? It was illegal. (laughs) Um, Everyone involved knew that they were breaking um, a 1950s immigration law that said that a U.S. citizen cannot aid someone in crossing into the United States without authorization. In 1985, over a dozen people were subpoenaed and then went to trial for breaking this law for um, actually conspiracy to um, smuggle uh, undocumented people into the U.S. And um, so they knew full well that this was a possibility as soon as they went public with the movement in 1982. And so many of those names I mentioned, they all went to trial and were facing, um, I believe, between five and ten years in federal prison. But lucky for them, they were only sentenced to probation. So they were found guilty, but they were sentenced to probation and also had to promise to stop their involvement in the movement. Many of the original organizers didn't stop, finding more discreet ways to participate until the movement lost steam in the late 80s as fewer refugees were crossing the border. But in the early 2000s, circumstances changed. It was post 9-11. It was um, right after Immigration and Naturalization Services became the Department of Homeland Security, which then had a whole new branch focused on immigration enforcement, what we have now, Immigration and Customs Enforcement. At the same time, Congress was passing lots of bills to fund the buildup of border security in terms of physical barriers, technology, border patrol agents, etc. And so it was this new moment in which a whole new group of immigrants needed support. And so um, groups started getting together again, the same groups that had, that had set up in the 80s in different cities and called themselves the New Sanctuary Movement. They launched on May Day of 2007, with similar goals around trying to work for immigration reform to stop these bad bills, giving money for border security and immigration enforcement, and particularly to support individuals who are facing deportation. Today's sanctuary movement is no longer an underground railroad. Most, if not all, activities are within the legal sphere. But some facing deportation, as Amy Beth mentioned, are still in need of assistance. And people of faith and goodwill are prepared to take risks to offer sanctuary once again. My name is Sarah Roberts, and I have lived in Tucson a long time. I'm I'm a registered nurse, and I'm a member at Southside Presbyterian Church. That's right, the same Southside Presbyterian from the original sanctuary movement. Sarah says that during the Obama administration, there was an increase in deportations, but there was also leniency given to those in deportation proceedings through a 2011 policy change regarding prosecutorial discretion. This allowed immigration officials and judges to close cases based on their judgment, many with strong ties to the community, family members with citizenship, and no criminal record had their cases dropped. But not all. We began to see people who had final orders of deportation. We got together and tried to figure out, brainstorm, what could we do to help these folks to stop their deportations or to keep them safe in their communities. 
Since the resurgence of the movement, this congregation has hosted two individuals facing deportation, keeping them from law enforcement. To be clear, unlike in the original movement, there's nothing strictly illegal about what Southside Presbyterian is doing. Here's Amy Beth again. In 2011, the Obama administration um, put into policy the sensitive locations memo. And really what it did was it just formalized what had already been a practice to say that there are specific spaces in our society where law enforcement is not going to enter. They did have a stipulation in that memo that said if someone was a threat to national security, then they would enter. There are other locations that are under that memo, including schools and hospitals and actually including things like um, wedding ceremonies. But what we've seen is that churches have really become the only place that have continued to be respected. One of these two people was Rosa Robles Loreto. She had received a final deportation order after proceedings resulting from a routine traffic stop. She has long, time, long, long time ties to the community of Tucson, and her husband and children are here, and they all are working and in school. And so she wanted to stay here in Tucson, her home, where she considers her home, and has a lot of family here as well. And the legal process was such that she already was receiving a final order of deportation. So we we came to Southside Church. We brought her case. And as a congregation, we decided that we would offer sanctuary to Rosa uh, if she wanted that uh, and talked about the what, what that would look like. So it's a big commitment from, from someone, from a person who goes into sanctuary because they have to spend all of their time inside the church or on the church property uh, in safety. And so she, uh, she thought about it, and with her family, they decided that she would go into sanctuary so she could stay here with her children. Her young boys were... Um, 8 and 11 at that time. So she went into sanctuary in August of 2014, and she was at Southside Church for 461 days. 461 days, over a year, kept inside a single building. And it wasn't easy for Rosa. It's very challenging. You can imagine emotionally what it must be like to be inside a space where you can't leave. So whereas she might be able to step outside a little bit into the courtyard space here in some churches in in urban areas that that wouldn't be possible for someone who's in sanctuary. So it's really a, a very restrictive feeling. It almost feels like you're incarcerated within a church. Sarah says Rosa's incredible faith and commitment to her family kept her strong. In the meantime, her sons and other members of the community traveled to Washington to plead her case with Homeland Security, and they were successful. Through a a confidential process, it got to the point where she was issued a letter that she could carry with her that keeps her safe, that says that she would not be uh, detained and deported uh, were she to be stopped by, by immigration authorities. The details of this agreement are not public. But from what we know, this letter doesn't grant Rosa legal status. It just keeps her in a sort of legal limbo. So for now, she's safe from deportation. Though Rosa's case was a success, it's impossible to offer sanctuary to every single individual facing deportation. Which is why Sarah says it's important for the new sanctuary movement to look at aid from a multitude of angles. Well, I think... It's important in this time that we're in now to think about sanctuary from a wider perspective. And so we're focusing on listening to the voices of impacted communities and how we can respond uh, in ways that 
uh, we can be allies that, that are able to support in ways that really can keep people safe for this time until we can get to the point where we have a more favorable moment where there will be immigration reform. Sanctuary in the streets, uh, can we respond when someone gets pulled over, witnessing uh, the interactions to make sure that, that the person stopped, that their rights are respected? So that's one way. That's, that may take the form of a rapid response team. Some volunteers have gotten together and formed a rapid response network that works through um, telephone texting, basically, and we, we have a hotline number. If someone is stopped, and they, they can call this hotline number and ask for a response if that's what they want. So it's, it's a lot about listening to the voices of people who are in the impacted communities. Sarah volunteers with a local legal clinic, Keep Tucson Together, and is one of the founders of the Tucson Samaritans, a group that travels on foot deep into the desert to leave food and water for migrants. I got involved, originally I got involved in 2000. One, when there was a huge increase in the number of deaths in the desert here in southern Arizona. And I felt called by my faith to get involved. I got involved initially with Humane Borders, which was the first faith-based response in the community to the, the high number of deaths that we were seeing of people crossing through the desert. And we uh, and Humane Borders puts out 50-gallon tanks of water in strategic locations in the desert, and from there, in 2002, I was part of the group that formed the group Tucson Samaritans, and we began to have a, a daily presence in the desert doing trips from Tucson, taking water, food, and medical assistance to people. And I'm a nurse, so I felt, also felt called from that perspective to be in the desert providing medical assistance to people uh, because people who are crossing the Arizona desert, you can imagine when it's a summer day, it's over 100 degrees, people get dehydrated very easily, very quickly, heat exhaustion very quickly. So they're at very high risk of death. And they just can't carry enough water to be able to survive. As mentioned before, the contemporary sanctuary movement has largely refrained from breaking the law. But in the summer of 2017, nine volunteers from the organization No More Deaths, which has a similar mission as the Samaritans, were arrested while leaving jugs of water and food in the desert. Thus far, eight have been sentenced to fines and probation. The charges vary by individual, but the government's general argument is that these volunteers had entered a wildlife refuge without a permit and, quote, abandoned property there. Around Tucson, I saw signs in support of the No More Deaths volunteers on nearly every street corner. They read, humanitarian aid is never a crime. Amy Beth says she sees connections between these arrests and the charges the original leaders of the sanctuary movement faced. They're definitely connected because really what it has been about is the U.S. government trying to make examples of people who are crossing the boundaries of the behavior that the U.S. government wants to see. So in the case of the sanctuary um, leadership that went to trial, it was about saying, how dare you break this law and um, go against what we've said is, is not right to do, and how dare you expose, basically expose our shame of what we're doing to these Central American refugees. In a very similar way, the Trump administration now has decided to make examples of humanitarian aid volunteers. But Sarah says she doesn't see any discouragement. Uh, it's, a, it's a moral duty, moral and, and 
religious duty for many of us. I don't think anyone who is committed to the work of saving lives out there is going to be discouraged. If anything, it's going to mean that people are going to step up their efforts. That was producer Melissa Fato talking to Amy Beth Willis and Sarah Roberts in Tucson, Arizona. Next, we speak with a professor at the University of Arizona researching how religious bias of law enforcement presents at the border and beyond. This is Inspired.